Hey everyone! Welcome to our May edition of Zeitgeist, a movie and TV podcast where we point at two points to create a counterpoint. We are going to be talking about light spoilers ahead for this musical medley of limited series with up here first from Hulu, and later in we are going to be talking about the prime video literary adaptation Daisy Jones and the Six. Joining me in this duology is my co-host, the occasionally musical jazz singer. We used to do karaoke together back in Chicago. I'm talking, of course, about Nivel Baz. What's up, man? Pretty good, man. Pretty good. I'm excited to get to talking about some musical slash TV shows. They're too few and far between. Yeah, so we're both musical fans. We watched that, I think it was like King Arthur-based show. What was that called again? Gallivant. And thank you for reminding me that, yeah. And I was thinking about Gallivant as I was watching these because uh, Gallivant was, and that's just kind of a showcase that this can work, right? <laughs> Gallivant is like the zenith of how this can work. So Gallivant is an interesting one because Alan Menken was the guy writing most of the music for Gallivant alongside a couple of additional composers. But I would really say Menken was the core soul of it alongside the creator Dan Fogelman for Gallivant. But Menken has been well known for jumps starting the Disney Renaissance. So that, for me, was sort of Alan Menken's capstone as a uh, music and lyricist. On the other hand, we're talking first about the new Hulu show, same company, but they came up with sort of this romantic comedy style TV program, and it also has a star-studded musical team. Like, it's weird because the two leads are not like musical powerhouses. They're TV stars. I mean, not even TV stars. Like, one of them is a TV star. The other one is what I lovingly refer to and i do mean lovingly an a-list z-lister which is may whitman and that's so true but may whitman also has a couple of really notable roles under her belt she plays anne in arrest development that's kind of the one that most people know her for but she was also in scott pilgrim and she was the lead in the movie the duff which funny enough i watched about an hour of the duff because it was playing on pluto tv in the middle of watching up here because i was legitimately starting to wonder when we were covering up here whether may whitman actually was as great of an actor as I remembered her as. And she is. In The Duff, she is perfectly calibrated. She is a wonderful performer. And in a way, I feel like the show up here does a little bit of a disservice to her as a creative and as an actor. I want to ask you how you feel like her character is calibrated and how she performs. You mentioned all her amazing work, and you forgot her most pivotal one, which is Avatar The Last Airbender. She plays Katara. Amazing. And of course, she also plays an important character in Perks of Being a Wallflower, also a character that she plays beautifully. I like that. A-list of the Z-list. And it's so true. She could have broken out at any point. It's just that she's kind of been doing more low-key stuff. And a lot of stuff that ends up becoming cult classics, like Avatar. I think the Duff probably qualifies a little bit, although kind of weird in the culture now because it doesn't suit as well for like a 2023 comedy world like i don't know if i will be burned at the stake for saying this but i feel like it falls under the same 
cultural sort of category as Mean Girl. Oh. Mean Girl had, had the largest of its cultural impacts when it came out. And the Duff sort of follows that. You know, there were a bunch of movies after Mean Girls that were made in that similar vein, and they're still being made today. I mean, the Maya Hawk Netflix movie and Easy A. Maya Hawk Netflix movie definitely falls under that camp. I loved that one, by the way. I thought it was really good. There was a genre of like, yeah, these are teens living sort of quasi weird teen lives that are not euphoria. And they're very relatable because they're ultimately like comedies, but the comedy lies in the minutia of being a high schooler. So I think the Duff placed that really well because Mae Whitman is constantly, I want to say that people treat her as like a weird actress because she's not an actress you would find conventionally playing like a lead role kind of mousy and that is why she was like one of two iconic roles right as a voice actor where she can play whatever character she wants and then she plays Anne and Anne is known for being mousy and that's kind of her whole shtick and I think the wonder of Mae Whitman is that she is so powerful and she's so grounded and she has that charisma that transcends it and so you get that kind of tension but something like the Duff really works because it highlights her charisma but everyone around her believes that she's somebody else, that she's effectively a more mousy person. And the story is her trying to break out of that. But you mentioned the uh, Maya Hawk. You're talking about Do Revenge, right? From Netflix last year? Yeah, Do Revenge. That one was really wonderful. And what I loved about it was that it was this subversion on a little bit. I mean, early on, it kind of moves away from that and goes, I think, a little bit more into like Heather's or Clueless territory because there are these two separate romance plots that sort of drive the movie into what it actually becomes. And in that way, it's a nice subversion on that very, really comfortable rom-com story. And up here also attempts that. It's a loose comparison, I know. You saw Do Revenge? Like the important clips. Sophie Turner, mainly. <laughs> of course, that went viral. So the big thing there is that it's subversive. It's got a few twists and turns along the way. But how do you feel like the concept of the rom-com is being portrayed here? Do you feel like the tropes are tropey or are they unique? And specifically the like the two characters and how they interact with each other, which we haven't said the other guy, right? Who is the guy from The Flash. Carlos Valdez. He's a great actor. I just want to say that outright. He's also great. And I think he really portrays his character of Miguel really well in the story. And obviously Mae Woodman also portrays Lindsay very well. I think I think what sold me on this show, at least we're about to talk about how I think we both didn't like the show very much, but I think one of the few things about the show that really, really worked was the connection between the two leads because it was very believable and it felt very authentic in terms of like a love story. And I, I feel like when it comes to tropes, what is weird about this specific show is that usually when you think about tropes, when you think about rom-com tropes, you think about specific like movie or television show rom-com tropes. What's interesting is that this show up here doesn't really show any of those tropes. What it instead shows is romance tropes found in musicals, which is a completely different thing. And this leads me to the actual point. This show is not written like a conventional TV show. It is written like a musical book, meaning the script feels very loose because it's trying to get to the next song as opposed to taking its time to develop its characters. That's 
Very true. I'll read the poster here just to kind of give you an idea of the background of these people, and you'll start to see a pattern, I think. It says on the poster, an original musical series from the director of Hamilton, the songwriter or the screenwriter of Tick, Tick, Boom, and the songwriters of The Book of Mormon and WandaVision. So Tick, Tick, Boom is a movie, obviously, for Netflix. WandaVision was a TV show for Disney+. Plus. But The Book of Mormon, Hamilton, and even Tick, Tick, Boom are both deeply grounded in the idea of being a musical. And Hamilton and the Book of Mormon to this day are still not adapted to musical form. In fact, there is sort of this glut of stuff that I think is going to be coming over the next few years of adaptations of these things. But needless to say, it's very difficult. I think certain directors like the upcoming director of the two Wicked movies, parts one and two, is John Chu, who I think is a really, really great talent for adapting it. But up here has a pretty big problem in my mind in terms of the look of it because of the way in which the characters actually are being shown on screen, which is that there are certain moments in the story where they really should have a wider lens on these characters. And that's a moment where I look at this and I say, well, who's behind this? Who is actually the creative team working on this? Because it seems almost like there are moments when the creatives are not only using a language of musicals, but aren't familiar enough with the genre medium of TV or camera work at all. And that means that there are certain choices that I just feel like don't always gel in the way that they would really work well on stage. Like when they break out into dance numbers. Sometimes the dance numbers are happening in real life. Sometimes the dance numbers are happening in this liminal space inside the character's head. Sometimes the characters are singing songs around their apartment, but it works in sporadic moments, but it doesn't work in full, I think. But ultimately, I think that's minutia, right? We're talking about whether we would recommend it, and I'll get into that in a little bit, whether I think it would be recommendable, because short answer is yes, and I'll explain why a little bit later. But where do you land on that spectrum and in terms of the way in which now we talked about the romantic comedy stuff in terms of the musicals, but let's now talk about musicals themselves. What does this contribute in your mind? It's fascinating because it actually strips like a musical in its full form onto the small screen. When you watch like musical adaptations, at least for movies, because most of the time it does happen specifically for movies as opposed to television shows, right? You have In the Heights, which recently came out, John M. Chu. Uh, you have, of course, Lee Miserable, Tom Hooper, and the list goes on. But those are squarely movies. They're not television shows. And I feel like the reason why they've been made more into movies and television shows is because the writers writing those movies know what to strip away from those musicals in order to make them into actual movies, into actual like stories that fit into the big screen. But here with television, because you have so much more time, someone can be like, no, I just want to readapt the whole musical in its purest form onto the small screen. And sure, that's like a cool idea. And it's a novel idea, but it just doesn't work because you're not on stage. People forget that when you watch something on stage, you are actually a lot more forgiving because it has the power of reading a book sometimes. Because when you're reading a book and you're absorbing that story in your mind, you're imagining things. And because when you're watching like a set in a musical, you can still imagine the missing pieces. Like when there are dream sequences, they're not being filmed in like an actual set. 
filled with like a strip club or a jazz club. It's just like a few stools, maybe a bar, maybe like a strip pole, etc. You just assume from those small little set pieces it's providing like the whole picture in your mind. And with this, you know, like a little bit of history here, Up Here is based on an actual musical called Up Here by Kristen Anderson Lopez and Robert Lopez, best known for writing the music for Frozen and Coco. I mean, they won the Oscar for writing Let It Go. And so they're amazing songwriters. And the music here is good. And when you watch it, you can clearly see, especially if you come from theater, that not only is the script very much strong, from the actual book, but just sort of the directorial choices made to film certain aspects just don't jive well. Like we were talking about this, that part of the big thing about up here is there are characters represented as voices in the main characters' heads, like their parents or their cousins or their previous girlfriends, etc. But when they all appear at once, they like fill the screen in a way that just doesn't work. It just feels like there is no actual focus. And any other director would be like, hey, this doesn't create like a very clean composition. But if it was on stage where there are no compositions, then it would totally be okay. Because the stage is so massive that these people would appear very small on stage wherever you sat. There are two separate things, which is both the style of the show and the ideas that the style represents. And that can be achieved by being creative and making really specific choices, larger than life choices. And I mentioned John Chu is a great example of somebody who is modern and does that. And you see that going back into stuff like when Baz Luhrmann makes a musical, you really start to see and even his incorporation with music when it's not there like you know Elvis or when he did The Great Gatsby both of them are music heavy but they aren't necessarily musicals but he is really specific with style up here has very little stylistic choice it feels very much like a TV show I would say if I were to compare it in terms of style I would say it reminds me a little bit of the sitcom Ugly Betty from 10 years ago in the way that it has similar type of actors some a little bit more high profile people, but generally people from New York. It's also a show about New York. Specifically talking about the characters, the voices in these characters' heads. That is the central conflict of the show. I think it's also something that is appealing about this show, theoretically, and I think might jive with certain viewers, and I want to specify that because I think that maybe our viewpoints are also going to be colored by the fact that we're looking at this from a critical perspective, but I could see this being something that is a really fun show, a really light show for some, and that is how I would like to meet this on its turf. And now I also want to dissect that a little bit now, right? So it's got um, themes of mental health, but it's a little bit more gritty than a show we're going to be talking about next month, which is Ted Lasso, which also deals with the ideas of mental health. And also the concepts of sex, right? Oh, um, I guess trigger warning, we're getting into the PG-13 territory here because this was a TVMA show. And the characters are both 20-somethings who are trying to find their way in the world, and so they do experiment with things like sex. How did that work for you specifically for these two characters and their journey throughout the show in certain environments? Did certain environments work better for you in certain episodes in terms of, of hitting the tonal balance? Did certain episodes specifically for you not align? For me, I would say kind of the big one was the Magooch episode was a real miss. 
Same, which is such a shame because you asked me earlier, I think before we started the pod, how most of the show, like the production is filled with a lot of musical talent, obviously, like a lot of prestige musical talent, but the two leads aren't, but the guest stars are. The guest stars are musical legends in a lot of ways. And, and Magooch is played by Brian Stokes Mitchell, who is like quite the legend. I see on his IMDb page, he's in one of your favorite movies, Prince of Egypt. He is. And if I remember correctly, he plays the chief of like the desert people and he sings one of the best songs in the film. But yeah, it's just like I appreciate how weird it tried to be because certain episodes were really weird. The Magooch episode was really weird. I think that ultimately this show really worked when it dealt into the characters insecurities in a really effective way. I think the pilot, at least the second half of the pilot worked really well. You know, when the two characters finally meet and interact with one another, I I think like the end of that pilot, which I don't want to spoil, was particularly effective because it created like a little twist or subversion of what you would expect in that kind of story. Again, that whole rom-com trope. And it very much also served as like the true inciting incident of this story in a lot of ways. And of course, the episode where we see a video game version of Miguel, which I think was the penultimate episode, I thought that was really strong because it squarely focused on loss. It made the character really human. And the last episode that I really want to give a good shout out to was when Miguel and Lindsay were on that rock, like that big cave sort of rock thing in New York that wasn't filled by buildings. It was just like a blank space of nature in between the bustling streets of New York, which I didn't even know existed. So I appreciated that there because I personally really dislike New York because I feel very claustrophobic when I'm there. And those characters also felt equally claustrophobic phobic and a lot of the episodes that I watched. So it was very fun to see that there was, in fact, like a environmental reprieve embedded in this city, which again was powerful. And I don't know how they would do that on stage. I think that kind of choice was very well executed on screen. So in those moments, you could see like, oh yeah, this does have potential. But more often than not, these episodes were written so loosely that we barely got to know these characters and really believe that they were real people. I think the two main characters get away with it the most because their connection is so strong. But but beyond that, it's very hard to justify the rest of the world at times because of how nonsensical it is to a point of trying to be as funny as it can be. Also, the thing that really bothered me was the fact that this story was set at the Y2K incident, and it never fully convinced me that that was justifiable. It just felt annoying that it was actually set before 2000 as opposed to modern day. They attempted to be a period piece so that they could get away with some things later in, I think, is what I got the sense of, because there were moments when the characters couldn't get a hold of each other. And to me, I think that was just a justification for why they didn't have a cell phone, which is something that happens a lot in popular media now. And often they will set things in like the 80s, say, there was a movie that came out last month called Air that was like, we are about the 80s. And so they played a bunch of like, top 40 80s songs in their soundtrack and it's a little oversaturated up here doesn't really do that it's not like they're blasting britney spears because of course it's a musical and so they're kind of tapping into that instead but you don't really get any sense of new york in 2000 there's no 
yeah, there's there's really no reason for them to be in a certain time period. There's nothing to indicate it. And I'm sorry, but the Y2K incident is like, sure, it's cultural. It is in its own way, like important, but there's no distinguishing feature of it. Well, and they don't relate to the characters because, for example, Miguel, the Carlos Valdez character, he is totally nonplussed by the Y2K incident. In fact, it's mentioned once by, I think it's the character called Chad, who, I mean, unfortunately, talk about a two-dimensional character. He's... Not even two-dimensional. <laughs> one. Let's call it what it is. A one-dimensional character because Okay, he's... Let's, let's be kind. It's not about being kind. It's about saying it as it is. He is a walking stereotype of a bro. That's not a two-dimensional character. That is very much like a stereotypical archetype of someone you think would be funny as a bro in the year 2000s. And you also have the investment bankers, which then moves to the investment banker that lives inside Miguel's head, the name of which I don't have in front of me, but who is one of the more high profile actors on the show in terms of like the New York scene, from what I gather. I think his name is Scott Porter from Friday Night Lights. And Porter is a great performer, but because he's just one of an ensemble of characters inside Miguel's head, right? So both of these characters have characters inside of their heads, then he doesn't have any real stakes as a character. He shows up, he sings a couple of songs, and then disappears. And I think that works better in a musical. You were right about that before, in the sense that musicals often do feel a little bit more segmented, that you can go from movement to movement to movement to movement. And it doesn't really matter the general arc of it. I mean, there are plenty of musicals, especially nowadays, that don't follow that, but a lot of early musicals do. And I think there are still musicals that we see today that utilize that and i've seen also those more segmented musicals having a little bit more difficulty coming on screen because viewers have a different expectation for that and i think that you hit on like a really important point because i think that ultimately the reason why this story feels very flat is because most of the characters are one-dimensional and the characters are one-dimensional because we're, they're not really human they're thoughts they're tropes they're not only tropes but they're thoughts of the main characters aha uh -huh. You know, they're not actively changing because they can't. They're part of the psyche of our main characters. Well, and do you feel like the two main characters are three-dimensional? I think they're very strongly two-dimensional. And I think they approach three-dimensionality in a lot of spots. What stops them from being three-dimensional? I think because they don't actively learn from their mistakes. And most of their choices are not driven by anything. That's one thing that I bumped up against is that Lindsay at the beginning of the show, she just moves to New York. She has a technical reason for moving to New York. Talk about a trope. <laughs> true. She's motivated by the fact that the story needs her to go to New York. And every time she meets a new character, she's kind of decides that this is her thing. And to me, that makes both Lindsay and Miguel often unlikable because they are so easily shaped by the other characters because the characters have to do something for them. It usually overemphasizes these thoughts or these characters or these stick figures. They're these one-dimensional people. One-dimensional thoughts. It means that they are no longer really themselves sometimes. There's an entire episode when Lindsay goes back home and she is re 
canoodling with her old flame Ned, and Lindsay kind of becomes the person that Ned wants her to be, and that is part of the story, right? That's part of the idea of mental health, the idea of the fact that she's letting the society's expectations of her color her actions and color the way that she wants to be, but I really don't get a sense of who that person really is. She wants to be a writer, but she doesn't have any experience in writing and doesn't seem that she has any point of view about how she actually writes. Most of the fiction that she comes up with is a regurgitation of the themes of the show at large. It doesn't seem to be additive. It doesn't seem to be making a comment on anything. And in that sense, I would argue that Lindsay needs to be the most three-dimensional character. And I think that the show often showcases the ways in which she isn't. The show often forgets about Lindsay as a character. The story starts squarely on Lindsay and her desires, and quite effectively, too. The first opening moments of the show are very gripping because you see the minutiae of her life and how miserable it is. And you start to really absorb the fact that, yeah, she should get out of this situation. So you're with her in that moment, especially because it starts with her being a child and quickly hammers in how insecurity is a theme in this story. Again, really strong stuff. But like watching the show, it's so annoying and frustrating when the show just abandons her for Miguel's story because Miguel's story ends up taking like 70% of the rest of the story because he's the most active character out of all of them. Lindsay is a very passive character. Anything that happens, happens to her, not because she's like searching for something. Every time she's trying to write, she finds an excuse not to write. We're quickly told that she's a good writer because she has raw talent. Fine, I can believe that. That's passable for me. But as you said, she doesn't have anything to say until the very end. And even that is sort of nebulous because it feeds back into sort of what Miguel is going through. And again, it's a double-edged sword because it's both a positive and a negative. One thing, it strengthens their connection, right? Which is the very core of the story and it makes it authentic. It makes it believable. But ultimately, the way it does that, it makes it feel very uneven and it makes it feel like they're putting much more work in Miguel than they are in Lindsay which it just feels sort of frustrating because those are the two characters you have to nail, especially because the rest of the characters are not necessarily two-dimensional or three-dimensional. Right, they're just ideas of what these characters actually are. Exactly. And and going back to that, all those characters are ultimately tropes and archetypes themselves. You mentioned the investment bankers. There is the investment banker bro archetype in three different ways in this show. You have Chad, you have the other character who's kind of like Chad. Chad and Chad too. And then you have Orson. Chad and Chad too. And- which is the Scott Porter character that lives in Sadie's brain. Sure. Yeah, exactly. And Miguel is constantly being pushed against that. And sure, fine, whatever. But still, it just feels like a rom-com movie that was made in the 2000s. But instead of a movie, it was made even longer. Imagine if they took out all the songs and they just had this story. This would easily be like a movie you would watch back in the 2000s that your stereotypical girlfriend would have taken you to. Not a good experience. Like I'm thinking 27 Dresses. But the problem is that I think of the ones that stuck with me, which just based off of bias are going to be the good ones, something like music and lyrics is a really wonderful version and actually incorporates music in a really great way. In a rom-com from, I think, 2005, that one is a really good rom-com. 
it has something to say in the format of a rom-com. It makes a statement about love and admiration and things that they have to overcome. Now, these two characters, I think, make sense in themselves. They make sense as individual characters working through their own neuroses. But in terms of beyond the fact that I think Veldis and Whitman have chemistry, I don't see these characters actually coming together in a meaningful way, especially because Lindsay and Miguel both seem to be pretty green. Well, they both they also break up with each other multiple times in the show, and for the same reasons, to the point where it becomes unbelievable that they get back together again. Because they also do, especially Lindsay, they both do pretty terrible things to each other. She writes about his secret and doesn't tell him until she does, and she tells him in arguably the worst scene in the show, which is <laughs> the rat burning scene. Oh my god, I'm not gonna to go further into this but if you watch this show and you get to that scene you will see exactly what i'm talking about that was it, it was like a tonal nightmare because the rest of the show feels pg i know that jordan said that the show is actually tvma but this show is pretty pg it feels pg at moments but then there are also moments where like miguel gets roped into a threesome yeah, exactly. Crazy tonal shift. But that moment, I kid you not, if you've seen Always Sunny in Philadelphia, it feels like a scene that was ripped out of that show. And you know, you know that that is not appropriate to the kind of show that we're covering right now. Talk to me about the music. So we have a really, really, really long stream of music. If you look on Spotify, it's like two hours of music. In one word, how would you describe the music? Oh, let me think about that forgettable <laughs> oh wow <laughs> me too i don't remember any of the songs except for the title song it's kind of impressive how they managed to get this huge team they got the team from frozen and all of the music really doesn't have any character doesn't feel even like it was pulled from anything right and that's something i was having a tough time with you talked about this feeling like a musical musical and i thought about what if i was watching this on stage what are some things that i would still have hang-ups on and one of the big things for me is that the musical identity doesn't feel like it's in conversation with anything either no, it feels like almost a jukebox musical of a band you've never heard of. Just because it doesn't, it's like easy listening. I think that's what I mean by when I say jukebox musical. That's what I mean. I actually recant what I said a little bit. It just feels like easy listening. It's like nice to listen to, but a good musical songs leave an impact. And none of these musical songs left like any emotional impact whatsoever. I think the only one that sort of did in like a negative way was the title song because I had heard it so much at that point when they sang it as like the very last song, the closing song. I was like, oh, I get it. It does have that quality. It was one that I do have, I can keep in my brain in a way that some of the other songs I might not be able to. And some of the songs come back. There was one episode, I think it was episode three, there's the song Signs, which if you hear the title, can you remember a song that goes along with it? Because they played it like a couple of times. The one that goes, it's a sign, it's a sign. They did it a couple of times throughout the episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. It's one of those things that with repetition, you kind of remember it a little bit better, but it's not like with La La Land, they use a lot of repetition, but they're also meaningful songs. Well, 
it's like musical motifs. In some ways, it is, I think, similar to up here in the way that they're, it's based on a love story. It's kind of a rom-com, but it really grounds itself with musical motifs. I think also the music in La La Land is incredible in a way that this one is passable. And yeah, so I agree with you. The kind of moment of the end point is the only time where I was really feeling grounded in the musical language. So that said, I would also ask, like, if there's any other comparisons that you would make to up here. Yeah, I think I want to go back to what you just said about how the show was written by a bunch of musical talent, right? But the thing we keep sort of missing is the fact that this musical was written already. This is adapted from an actual musical and written by actual musical talent. So I think the root of the problem is that the musical itself, the musical that this show is adapted from, is just not very good. I would like to believe that if I watched this show and it had the same music, I still wouldn't enjoy it. And I think that's what I want to compare it to because when we talk about Daisy Jones and the Six, that isn't based on anything. The songs specifically were not stripped from anything. They were not taken from anything. Sure, it's based on a novel. I agree that you're right in the sense that they needed to ground the music from the original musical in some kind of actual identity. And I think a style like Cabaret would have suited the material here a lot better. The reason why I wanted to talk about this is I feel like it is speaking sort of wholly to it, its own truth in a way that Daisy Jones and the Six is as well. And it's also a little bit smaller, and it's something that I would consider a comfort watch, which is something we haven't really covered much on our program thus far, which is the idea of something sort of custom-built for a niche audience. And I see this being custom-built for a certain type of person. And I actually would recommend this to that certain type of person. That said, I think that the structuralism gets to fall away a little bit if you are looking for these specific hits. If you're someone who really wants something similar to, like, Dear Evan Hansen, maybe, you just are looking for Anything that is a musical series that has a lot of music, that has this kind of general shape of a rom-com. Now, could it have been a better shape of a rom-com? In my opinion, yes. But I think it does still have those moments, and so I think it is worthwhile by that aspect. Well, this is where I have to disagree with you, because I think this is the lowest way you can experience this kind of show. The whole like draw that you're speaking to is that the show is different. It attracts like a certain niche. It like pulls on a certain niche because it's so unique in, on the small screen. But another show like it has existed, and we talked about it, at the very beginning, and you mentioned it yourself, Gallivant. Gallivant is the peak of what a show like that could be. You know, it, it is a rom-com. It has a very, very, very strong identity. Its songs are catchy. I still think about the songs from Gallivant to this day, and I think it's still on Netflix. It, it has two seasons. It was canceled way before its time. I'll make two notes. One, it is not on Netflix, it's on Hulu, at least in the US. And Timothy Odmanson from Psych is the one, or no, 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 he is one of the characters. I think he plays the bad guy. He plays one of the characters on the show. I'll say that. And that character alone really kind of brings it up. And he's, I mean, he's a great actor. I feel like he was a little muted on Psych because he gets, he always has to kind of play the foil to the lead character, Sean. And in Gallivant, I feel like he really gets a chance to shine. And he 
especially later in, he really gets to hold his own on screen. That's why I'm pushing so hard against this, because we can't forgive a show for being lazy. And I think that's what ultimately this show is. It is laziness in every degree. It's lazy with music. It's lazy with plot. It's lazy with characters. It's lazy with structure. It's lazy with dialogue. It's lazy with its period. It's lazy with everything. And I think that recommending it would be a disservice just because it is one of the few different musical-esque shows on right now. Because again, there are other shows that do this, but much better. Galavant was a few years ago and Schmigadoon is now. And I'm very excited about covering Schmigadoon, not this season, unfortunately, but in its third season. And I also would add to that list the show that we're going to be talking about next, although not a musical, Daisy Jones and the Six on Amazon, which we will be talking about right after this quick musical interlude. Very on brand this time. So I will be playing some tunes and we're going to get back to it. Stay tuned. What's cooking, Zeitgeist listeners? Hope you've been enjoying our show. If you have been, go ahead and spread the love. Share Zeitgeist with your friends, your family, or anyone who will let you share their password. Let's make this conversation a blockbuster. Remember, if you're digging the vibe, don't keep it to yourself. Share Zeitgeist with your friends, your colleagues, anyone who loves to stay ahead of the curve. The more the merrier in our journey of discovery. And hey, if my voice is reaching you right now, that means you can't catch a break. And I mean a musical break, which is a special perk for our Spotify Mixcloud listeners. If you like how smoothly things are rolling here, consider tuning in on these platforms. Our chats about TV and movie magic await you without missing a beat. Well, you are missing some beats. And by beats, I mean awesome tunes. That's fine. You know better for next time. Anyway, back to the show. Hey guys, I am now joined by my friend and avid reader, Kieran Dillon. Kieran, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Jordan. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. We are just about in a second to get back to my conversation with Niv. But first, I wanted to talk about the source material for the Amazon Prime series Daisy Jones and the Six. And to do that, I wanted to talk to somebody who's actually read it. Kieran, what is your relationship with the author of the book, Taylor Jenkins Reid? Have you read any of her work previously? You know, I have. Initially, I kind of made an unfair judgment about the writer, that she was a bit of a fast fiction writer out a lot of substance which is very cruel, until I read The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo about a year ago, which is a good book. I recommend listening to the audiobook of it, and it actually has a very similar format to Daisy Jones and the Six. Biographer is talking to someone famous, getting their life story. I do actually don't know anything about her as a person now, Taylor Jenkins Reid, but I do really like her writing style. Where did you hear about the first book that you read, The Six Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, you said? Yeah, The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. Um, I have a friend, Nash, here in Minneapolis, who also loves books, and he's constantly feeding me recommendations, and he told me to read that one. That's awesome. Was it fun, that first one? I assume it was good enough for you to dive into Daisy Jones. I was pretty lukewarm about it at the time, but it's now since grown on me. Daisy Jones and the Six I wanted to read just because my friend Nash was just really driving it home that I needed to read this book, so I I caved. What do you think Nash sees in Taylor Jenkins Reid's work? He loves a good story. I think he likes very strong female characters. And I think he likes the sexy, playful, druggy, you know, attitude that Daisy Jones and the Six has going on. Okay, valid. I mean, there's plenty of that in the show, so I vibe with it. (laughs) 
So the Evelyn Hugo book, that one I assume is written more like traditional fiction. Is that correct? Yeah, it does have a bit more of a traditional format. There's only two main characters and it does switch from both of their points of view, with Evelyn Hugo being this movie star talking about her life to her biographer. I can't remember her name. And you get to hear about the biographer's personal life and the way that she is inspired and affected by Evelyn Hugo. Is it also about L.A.? I mentioned because Daisy Jones and the Six is set in Los Angeles for the most part. The book itself takes place in New York, but all of Evelyn Hugo's life takes place in L.A. I think that character was modeled off of Elizabeth Taylor, which is really interesting that Evelyn Hugo is modeled off of Elizabeth Taylor and Daisy Jones is modeled off of Stevie Nicks. Interestingly enough, I heard, I don't know if you've heard this, but the writer actually didn't really have much fandom for Fleetwood Mac. She watched a documentary or some such thing was like, hey, I want to write a book about this drama because it's kind of fun and silly. I wholeheartedly believe that. How does the oral history format of Daisy Jones and the Six add to the book? I think that Taylor Jenkins Reid's strength as a writer is her introspection and interiority. And I think that with an oral history, you're able to really cut through these characters' like deep innermost thoughts and reflections in a way that's really efficient. They're able to tell a story and tell it really fast and get a lot of characters' opinions on something. I think it also creates this really wonderful tension of multiple characters could have different attitudes about the same same night, the same event, and you don't really know which one to trust, that it does create like a lot of tension as a reader. I think it's also there's so many books about rock and roll that are written as oral history books. I'm thinking of Oliver But the Shouting, but I think Jim Walsh about The Replacements, and that's a book that was able to talk about The Replacements and Paul Westerberg with like a lot of nuance and get to know those characters better. So it's something that already exists in the music genre format. Playing with that is really cool. It is, I think, also increasingly more popular as time goes on. I keep hearing more and more about oral history books that get published every six, eight months for various wide genres, not just entertainment. You know, I've seen a lot of stuff (laughs) for, yeah, musicians or people who are in a very famous movie or film (laughs) series. But you couldn't do feasibly an oral history about any kind of event. And it allows for a little bit more flexibility in that journalism. Totally which I think is really handy. And I see why that would be the case for fiction. In terms of the specific writing style, is there a general style to the writer's prose? You mentioned that you had a preconception that she was kind of a pop fiction writer. How did that translate? I think that her prose is very digestible. I think that her books are very easy to read and can appeal to a wide audience in the way that a lot of fast fiction books can. But I think that her books are very well written. You know, I don't see a lot of flaws or clunkiness in the prose itself. Again, I really love her introspection where she does this with Evelyn Hugo too. The characters are able to talk about something that they're going through, but then get this sort of like universal, almost like a, this is a lesson that I have learned from this that you, the reader, can take. But it's done very subtly and it's earned, but it's so rich and wonderful to like experience as a reader. Wow. It sounds like you're giving full support to the writing. Is there anything that you find maybe facile about it? I want to, you know, look at it from both sides because, you know, on our podcast, we often, and I mean, I loved this show, but as I'll talk about in a second, there are some trappings that maybe I find a little bit soapy. Do you see any of that? Or is the catharsis, do you feel like paired well enough with something more literary? No, I hated this book when I first read it. I actually texted my friend Nash to 
just like a whole slew of this is everything I hated about this book. And it was only kind of after going back with the intention of talking about it on this podcast that I was able to kind of sit with it and warm up to it. As a reader, one of my favorite things to read are books about Los Angeles that take place in the 60s and 70s. I love Eve Babbitt's. I love John Didion, Gavin Lambert. It's it's a very, very fascinating era of history that I think perfectly sums up like Americana as a whole. And there were a lot of things that I felt like she got wrong that really bothered me. And I think that she talks about the Vietnam War and how that affects the characters, but I don't actually see it affecting them that much. I don't see this sort of level of hopelessness and paranoia that was really like a big part of that era of Los Angeles culture. I see a lot of safety as a lot of referred to it in my notes as very muted book of these are characters from a modern lens who are have an awareness about, you know, you should never an underage groupie because that's pedophilia and you know uh, I just think that it was a very safe book where these characters are going through these things that they talk about as these like very melodramatic events that in actuality I think compared to reality are, are, are a little bit tame and muted. I think that a rock memoir that does that really well is Richard Thompson's B-Swing. It's a memoir about him as a musician in the 70s, playing within the same genre as, you know, Daisy Jones in the Six, and his own experimentations with drugs and sex and just like a dangerous sort of lifestyle. But it's written with him as an adult with the understanding of what he has gone through. It's very similar to this book, but I think it does that a little bit better. What about the characters specifically? Do you feel like the characters have a distinct voice or do they tend to run a little closer to Taylor Jenkins Reid's sort of house voice? Or is it maybe something in between? I think that I didn't pay as much attention to the varying prose between characters, but I was able to tell who was speaking without really having to check the names every single time throughout the oral history. Because the characters had such strong personalities, you were kind of able to tell who was talking just from that. You know, like Karen's character would always, you know, these f***ing men like, think they can get away with everything, like very putting down everyone in the band. And I think it was Eddie, whose character would always be like, oh, I'm so much better than everyone. I deserve so much recognition. And there would just be a lot of repetition of those basic ideas that would create that sort of structure to make those characters consistent. I think that her prose itself, especially when it comes to introspection, was very similar, especially with Billy, Camilla, and Daisy. The way that they write their introspections is all very similar. It's just different because they're different characters using that introspection to talk about different ideas. So you mentioned also that the characters sometimes hearken closer to a modern lens. Do you feel like there are any specific ideas or opinions that an individual character has that could have been expanded on at all? I think that a lot of the characters in the book talked about the 70s as if it was this like very like olden times without actually sort of addressing all of the social upheaval that was happening at the times. Like with the feminist movement of how broad it was, Karen talks about a lot of the things she goes through as if she was the only person going through it. Like if she was the only woman who had ever had an open relationship or like not quite committal. Whereas this book's taking place in what, 1979? Like that's kind of been there. That's been done. It wasn't really as monumental as the characters were kind of making it out to be. Yeah, obviously kind of the major characters, Daisy and Billy. But you also mentioned that Karen and Camilla get some time to speak in the book. Are there any other characters that get a significant amount of page time? Eddie does, and then Graham, Billy's brother. Um, those are really the only ones that I remember off the top of my head. And of course, they, you know all the other members of the band who are still living kind of come in and out um, from time to time have their comments. Like the manager of their band will come through and say something or things like that. 
Sure. I think another downfall of an oral history is that if a character is telling a story in which their life was on the line, it kind of takes away a lot of the suspense because you know that they're there to tell the story in the oral history, that it makes it feel a lot more safe of a book to read because you kind of know what's going to happen. Yeah, and there's a natural trajectory. It's just the matter of you have to figure out where point A and point C intersect. And that's the book, right? Point B would be the actual story itself. What kind of person would you recommend to read Daisy Jones and the Six? Do you feel like you would recommend a friend to it? Do you think somebody with maybe more specific interests? I remember in the notes you asked if I would recommend it to my parents. And absolutely not. My parents are both people that lived through the 70s. I think they would tear it apart. Genuinely, as someone who just got married, you know, last summer, I recommend this book to people that just got married, to newlyweds. I think that the book has a lot of really great insight and advice about, you know, relationships and the way that they work, especially comparing Daisy's marriage to Niccolo and then Camilla and Billy's marriage. Billy and Camilla talk about their relationship as it is so wonderful to trust someone so much that you allow them to have secrets. And Camilla talks about Billy as like, I trust this man to the end of the world. He can make all the mistakes. I'm still going to welcome him back like I am his family, which is absolutely how I feel in my own marriage. And so it was just really wonderful to have that kind of affirm and talked about and also seeing the flip side of it of Daisy talking about relationships and how she was told that marriages were really hard but this was just beyond that this was grueling this was sucking the soul out of her and that's it's just really really great insight on relationships I would also recommend this book to people that are just sort of starting to get a self-awareness about their own substance abuse that Daisy has a lot of great insight as to what that cycle feels like and I think it can also show like you can have it all, you can be a rock star and you're still unhappy. There's still things that like you need your vices for. I think the book is really great for both of those things. I would not recommend this book to someone who really knows rock and roll history and someone that knows a lot about LA history. Like me, I was kind of white knuckling it so many times of like, that's not the bar they would have gone to. That's not the people that would have been there that night. Like this is way past that point in time. There's a little bit of <laughs> some, some incongruencies. <laughs> Some modern biases. But it sounds like there is a lot of form, despite the fact that it is created by pop fiction yeah, writer that gained a lot of <laughs> prescience through TikTok. So that is uh, one major bone to it. Kieran, thank you so much for coming on Zeitgeist. We are going to be getting back to my conversation with Niv Elbaz after just a little bit of music. Great. Thank you so much for having me. What's cooking, Zeitgeist listeners? Hope you've been enjoying our show. If you have been, go ahead and spread the love. Share Zeitgeist with your friends, your family, or anyone who will let you share their password. Let's make this conversation a blockbuster. Remember, if you're digging the vibe, don't keep it to yourself. Share Zeitgeist with your friends, your colleagues, anyone who loves to stay ahead of the curve. The more the merrier in our journey of discovery. And hey, if my voice is reaching you right now, that means you can't catch a break. And I mean a musical break which is a special perk for our Spotify Mixcloud listeners. If you like how smoothly things are rolling here, consider tuning in on these platforms. Our chats about TV and movie magic await you without missing a beat. Well, you are missing some beats. And by beats, I mean awesome tunes. That's fine. You know better for next time. Anyway, back to the show. And now we're back 
talking about Daisy Jones and the Six. You might forget me, but I will not be forgetting about this show anytime soon. Let's do a little bit more discussion on sort of the general ideas. We've talked a little bit before the break about the zeitgeist, which is the title of our show, and ideas behind musical shows. Now, Daisy Jones and the Six doesn't really sit neatly into this formula. It's because it's trying to take inspiration from a real band. So it feels like a biopic, which are mostly reserved for movies. You have Rocketman, Elton John. You have, obviously, Bohemian Rhapsody, which is Queen. And this sort of takes inspiration from the American-British band Fleetwood Mac. But at the same time, it's not directly based on them because these are characters that are independently made up from them. They're inspired by these real people like Stevie Nicks. But even though it's inspired and based on these people, it's not actually about these people. In fact, Daisy Jones and the Six is adapted from a book. Yeah, it's a huge book. It did really big numbers. And that's actually kind of the MO of one of the co-producers for this show. Obviously, this came out on Amazon Prime, but it was co-produced by Hello Sunshine, which is the kind of hot new production company from uh, A-list celebrity. And its big thing is that it runs parallel to these huge kind of talking point books. It's almost like the Oprah Book Club for 2023. Very cool. That's why it doesn't fit quite neatly into what what we have come to expect with these kinds of stories and these kinds of adaptations, because they very much stem from real people. But it does the extra step of not only completely fictionalizing these people by turning them into completely different characters with different names, but also creating a story that's independent from its inspiration entirely. Daisy Jones and Stevie Nicks, even though they're quite similar, go through very different stories. How does that compare to the show we just talked about from Hulu up here? I mean, one's a musical and one's obviously like, I want to call it like a jukebox musical. I feel like that's more appropriate, but at the same time, it still isn't because these are songs that have been freshly made for this project. It's a fictionalized biopic. Yeah, it's a fictionalized biopic. In terms of the filmic medium, it's closer to something like Almost Famous. Fictionalized biopic is a misnomer because all biopics are inherently fictional. Even like the most true to life biopic is inherently fictional. So that's what I mean. Even though what you're saying about Almost Famous is true because it is very similar in that vein, I feel like what's really special about Daisy Jones and the Six is that it's approaching like a whole new type of genre. And doing so, like up here, with a pretty thin cast of A-listers. It's mostly people who are from either TV or actually most of them from the tabloids. <laughs> you have my favorite, Suki Waterhouse, who is best known for walking the red carpet with the Twilight heartthrob. You mean Batman. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I was talking about Edward Cullen, but he's the same guy, isn't he? Shows your age. <laughs> and his name is Robert Pattinson. <laughs> You also have 
Riley Keough, who is mostly an unknown. Fun fact about Riley Keough, she is not a singer. Suki Waterhouse is. She has a, I think, one hit TikTok song. Riley Keough is not. Sam Claflin learned to play the guitar. Both of those people were cast based off of a chemistry read. In fact, all of the main cast that the showrunner, Scott Neustadter, ran, they wanted to, if you don't know what a chemistry read is, test the other actors with each other in terms of how they, well, read for chemistry. Whether they actually have what it takes to be in the same room believably, because a band really needs that. And I feel like it was nailed, personally. They also attended band camp, so if they didn't know a particular instrument, I believe Suki Waterhouse also had to learn how to play the keyboards. Uh, Some of the other actors maybe had some other things that they had to learn in order to, certainly the songs, right, they had to be comfortable with. You mentioned La La Land and Ryan Gosling, for instance, and, you know, didn't have much confidence in his singing capability. And even though, like, he isn't the most amazing singer out there, he did a serviceable job. And so did Emma Stone. Emma Stone was an amazing singer, and she generally doesn't sing herself. And But we should rip the Band-Aid off because Riley Keough, in particular, has, like, an insane legacy to live up to because she is Elvis Presley's... Elvis's granddaughter. Exactly. So she has this already incredible legacy to love up to and man does she live up to it because her singing ability is incredible there were moments where she really channeled like stevie nicks i feel like the person who channels stevie nicks for me nowadays is miley cyrus miley cyrus has such like a stevie nicks energy and such a really unique and unconventional sound especially from her development from her hannah montana days or her like country drawl sort of music now it's very folksy and i think that riley keogh did that very well and not just the costuming the costuming was also amazing but i think just her voice work was just so empowering florence and the machine as well does that florence welsh that's another great musical example and sam kaflin also a person you don't necessarily see saying he's also the biggest star on this show because he's actually been in movies and pretty big movies at that the hunger games for example and uh, enola holmes on netflix He is one of the bigger actors, although by far, I would say the one that I would say is closest to A-list is the one who's also in the least of the show, who is Timothy Oliphant. I barely even recognize Timothy Oliphant. Yeah, but he's television royalty, but Sam Kaplan is like a working actor in movies. Because Timothy Oliphant, he has been in movies, absolutely, but when it comes to his line of work in television, that stands head and shoulders about everybody else. And that's why he, his role feels quite significant. But no, I, I just thought that uh, Sam Kaplan and Riley Keough did an amazing job as singers. It felt like they were born to be singers. There is a line, a very beautiful line, where Daisy tells... Billy, the character of Billy played by Sam Kaplan, that she loves his voice and that's like a moment where they recognize each other as artists. And I truly believe that because I also loved his voice. Yeah, he's got this kind of rugged tone, almost sounded a little bit like a Led Zeppelin type of sound to his voice. And that's kind of one of the unique things about this band. The music, in contrast to what we really didn't love about up here, for Daisy Jones and the Six, they created an entire album on Spotify, and they spent two whole years crafting the music for this, and I believe hired some of the top talent from the indie sphere. I heard somebody on one of 
of the podcasts I listened to who covered this show was talking about one of my favorite artists working right now. Phoebe Bridgers actually did some co-writing on some of Daisy's songs. And how did you feel about the way in which music plays a role? I mean, it's interesting because if we're finally going back to the zeitgeist of it all, this kind of music sort of got jump-started by music that we listen to in our everyday lives, by pop indie music or pop folk music. And when we really go back to sort of how these shows got credence to be made today, we have to credit Glee by Ryan Murphy and even Smash for the most part, even though Smash is more a representation of like the Broadway scene. And again, moving that back to musicals, but it still dealt with everyday people dealing with musical careers because Glee focused on a high school. I don't know the technical term for me. It was choir. It was a Glee club. Yeah, a Glee club. There you go. In America called it Glee club in Thailand choir. And like with Smash, it, had musical songs, but again, it dealt with Broadway actors trying to be Broadway actors. And here it's about musicians trying to be musicians. And that's what I'm saying. It's about people very much invested in making a career out of singing. Because even the main character in Glee, which was Rachel, played by Leah Michelle, her desire was to be a Tony Award winning musical singer. And it's the same thing here. These people want to be Grammy Award winning musicians. You were into musical while I was into rock, and we don't really see a lot of that overlapping. And so, no, that's an interesting point that you brought up that's really lovely. Running off the cast, I also wanted to, you've covered Claflin beautifully, but I want to co-sign that. People were knocking Camilla Marone, who is also formerly known as a <laughs> famous person's beau. She was, I think, one of a couple of people who hit the age of 25 and stopped dating Leonardo DiCaprio. But she also has a few credits here and there as an actor. But people were saying that she has a, quote, face that feels like it knows what an iPhone is. I mean, she does look young. <laughs> but to be honest with you, her voice sounded very familiar to me. The entire time I was just trying to think to myself, have I seen her before? Have I heard her before? And then I realized something. She just sounds like every Zoomer out there, which isn't a dig against her. It's just like her voice. She is a wonderful actor, to be fair. Yeah, to be fair, she is a wonderful actress, but she at times sounded like my sister, who, by the way, as you know, Jordan, is 18. So ultimately, it was a weird experience watching a person with that voice being in a period piece that was ultimately set in the 80s. And who do you think would be the most believable as a person from the 80s if you had to pick? It would definitely be Riley Keough because she feels like she transported through time to get here. It's that Elvis Presley legacy in a lot of ways. There is sort of that prestige. And I think that when you dig into it, it's not that hard to understand that a person can tap into that energy if they were around that energy their entire lives. I truly believed that she grew up in Graceland. And for those that don't know, Graceland is an Elvis Presley museum slash house filled with memorabilia, like really, really old memorabilia. And that's what I mean. Like I know that this might sound crazy saying this. Well, and not to get too esoteric, but then you get into nature versus nurture, right? Is there something in her that lives in the same place as Elvis? I think maybe. 
Yeah, absolutely. Because out of everyone there on that Daisy Jones in the sixth stage, she's the only one actively performing. I mean, Sam Claflin performs as well, but he performs like a rock star, but she performs like an ethereal fairy goddess akin to Florence Welsh and Stevie Nicks. She's in her own world because it is very much Daisy Jones. And the six. She's individual and the rest of them are units. Right. There are a number of times when the Lindsay Buckingham proxy, whose name is Billy Dunn in the show, who he effectively founds the band, which is a little bit different from the actual Stevie Nicks story, I should clarify, because both of those people were added in. Buckingham and Stevie were both added in a little bit later. But in this case, the entire band is there and then Daisy Jones shows up. Also, additionally, Taylor Jenkins Reid was interested in the story of Fleetwood Mac, quite obviously. But interestingly enough, she claims that she's not much of a fan of Fleetwood Mac and just saw a documentary and thought it was an interesting story and so wrote a book about it, which I just think is kind of neat. I also wanted to give my answer. I think that the actor Sebastian Chacon, who played Warren, his mustache looks a little silly and I can tell it's fake, but I really think he, to me, looks the most like a 70s rock drummer in terms of that entire group, I feel like, or the guy who played Teddy. So talking about the actual timbre of the show, the tone of the show implicates a band that's a hot burning star ready to go Nova. We all know what happened with Fleetwood Mac. Let's talk about the mockumentary style. So it's got this kind of scripted, dramatic tone that also moves to these talking head interviews that were popularized with a show like The Office. How do you feel like it bridges that gap? I feel it does a better job in terms of doing that sort of device than a lot of other shows have. Connecting it so directly to documentaries about musicians makes it feel more authentic. Whereas something like The Office doesn't feel authentic. It felt like it was establishing a genre, which is what it did. But with this in particular, people found it jarring because they found that the specific documentary style was so sensationalized and over-dramatized. I was on the other side of that. I actually thought that it actually aided the story in feeling unique because we were able to consistently jump from the present and the past through multiple points of view of each of these characters, which added more depth, especially depth to characters that weren't given that much love in this show, which were the other members of the six. I think only Daisy Jones and Billy Dunn truly get the amount of depth their characters deserve. All the other characters unfortunately do not that's an interesting take i'm excited to hear more about that but i wanted to mention that i'm not sure if you knew but as i was talking about earlier with my guest this is told in an oral history format the original book so that is kind of how they have conducted the adaptation so they've kept a little bit of the documentary feel but they're also of course including the real story that goes along with it and filling in the gaps where they need to in order to portray it as a visual medium so i feel like as an adaptation it's really solid i having said not read the book that's why i brought on a guest to talk about it a little earlier but also i actually didn't love the documentary cutscenes often and they worked sometimes but there were moments when I felt like the talking head moments were a little too 
perfect. And I know occasionally that does kind of happen on The Office, but I feel like The Office started to build its own language over the course of many seasons in a way that, of course, this show just can't do. And they, to me, didn't really ever hit that balance where it felt believable, but also somewhat extra ordinary, something a little bit broader, something entertaining, right? Because it has to be both entertaining and believable. And I felt like it was entertaining, which is more important, but it wasn't totally believable. But again, why do you think that is? I personally think the reason is because the office version of a mockumentary was, again, establishing a genre. They were deciding their own rules of how to approach it. This particular thing is drawing from real live documentaries, like how they operate interviews. And I think that's where the jarring effect happens. There's an uncanny valley effect to it that we see, where we see these documentaries try to replicate how you would interview an actual musician in that kind of medium. But as you said, it feels too perfect to dramatize and too sensationalized to feel authentic. I think that was not the purpose. I think the purpose was ultimately about trying to deepen these characters through their perspectives about the present and the past. Because ultimately, the story takes place in three places. The first is LA, and then it's, I think, Philadelphia? They start out in their hometown, and then they move to LA, and then they go back to their hometown for uh, half an episode, and then they tour. Yeah, they start at two locations, but there is a third secret location, which is the present, effectively the future, starting that first episode. So there are like three different sort of location-based point of views. And one has to do with time, and the other two have to do with location. And that's the difference, because we're trying to get keyed into these perspectives relatively quickly. And the only way to do that effectively is by having that trifecta of location perspective time thing. That should be on a shirt. I want to talk about those early episodes a little bit because I feel like in terms of its episodic nature, obviously it's a TV show, but it's a TV show to me that was made to be binged. And watching it on a week-to-week basis as it was coming out, the early episodes, I understand why they dropped them all at once, because a lot of the early episodes started a little slow and it took a while to gain momentum for me. And I was wondering if it did the same for you. Well, that's the interesting thing because I didn't even know it dropped once a week. I binged it. Okay. How did it work for you? You felt like it worked well? It worked really well. I binged it in like two days and it was a wonderful watch. So I think it's just strengthening what you're saying. The watch for me was difficult. The first four episodes, if you rewatched them, what you find is that it takes a very long time to get to where the show needs to get to. And in the early episodes, Riley Keough, very smartly, her character is on her own. We get a lot of time with Daisy as a solo artist and seeing her character develop which is, I think, a strength for the show because we get to know Daisy as a character before she gets introduced in the band. But the character, I feel like, is the strongest in those early episodes because she is kind of this strong female protagonist. Yeah, and I think both these shows have double-edged swords to them because the things that strengthen certain aspects of the show weaken other aspects of this show. The first half, I was sure when I was watching that first episode that both Billy and Daisy were going to meet. I thought that was going to be the end of the episode, that they were just going to meet somehow, somewhere in L.A. Because they were both migrating to the same place. Daisy was already in L.A. She's an L.A. native or California native. And Billy was on his way. So I just assumed that realistically that's how the show would 
operate structurally, but it didn't happen. In fact, the midpoint of the story, I believe it was episode four or episode five where they met for the first time or interacted truly for the first time. Right at the end of episode four, they were able to interact. And that was like the taste that you get right at the top because the first four episodes all came out and that was it. So it felt like I was getting right up to the point when the story was about to start. It's interesting because why I call that the midpoint, and midpoint is a term we use when we study films, or specifically storytelling mediums, as a thing that changes the entire story. It gives it like a whole new direction. It makes it feel very different. In the first half, pre-midpoint is Daisy and Billy on their own. And then the second half, after the midpoint happens, which is them meeting, it is about their connection or their growing connection. And that's when the real story happens and plays we call that act one and act two right that's why it's broken down into acts because each act feels different but i think when it becomes tricky in television because television also operates in that way it just takes a longer time usually the midpoint in television happens in that midpoint episode of the season episode four or five it's a 10 episode season but what you need to do in order to make that effective is consistently up the stakes each and every time and i feel like the whole stake of the show hinges on the connection that both Daisy and Billy have. And by sort of blocking their meeting for such a long time, you're just are like, okay, where are the actual stakes of this story? We know these characters are not only destined to meet, but it's really important for them to meet. And they're putting unnecessary obstacles in the story to negate them meeting yet. And the exciting part of the show comes when you have this triumvirate of love triangles. Yeah, exactly. There are three love triangles that live in this show, and I'll keep it to that. But the way that those love triangles develop, I have no notes on. Once we get to that point, once we get to episode seven, it is an absolute masterclass of this perfect, like, romance, but romance not in, like, the romantic comedy sense, but, like, true romance. Yeah. And I think it completely nails that in a way that I really haven't seen on TV for so many years, because it tends to feel a little saccharine. But this almost, I one of the actors said, I wish that this had come out 10 years earlier because the AO3 fan fiction that could have come out of this. And I absolutely agree. I think that this is a perfect ground for something like that. It really feels true. It feels heartfelt. It really, I mean, sometimes a little sweet, but not too sweet. Just perfectly balanced. Well, it draws on the pulp rock band love triangle craziness that we hear about our entire lives. When we read about Fleetwood Mac and we read about the sordid affairs that happened that caused so much drama within the band, it's so juicy that there's still important stories today that are tied intrinsically to the legacy of that band. When we think about Fleetwood Mac, as you said, we don't think about the people who actually created the band. We think about Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks because they were linked to together romantically and of course because they are the important musicians but part of like the drama embedded in their legacies is what props them up beyond their musical ability and our memory or john lennon and yoko ono that's another really important example of that because ultimately when you think about the beatles you don't only think about their amazing musical legacy you think about how john lennon's relationship with yoko ono effectively disbanded the band absolutely so this kind of thing isn't typically done especially not for tv right a fictional musical biopic i think just 
just by nature of the way that we've already been talking about it, is kind of hard to market. So I wanted to discuss that because something like Daisy Jones and the Six, when you think about its comparable stories, both of these are very successful. Star is Born, Almost Famous, with musical stories like this often well-received but infrequently greenlit. What do you think some benefits and drawbacks are to entertainment like this at large? I mean, like I said, most of these projects you mentioned were films. They were not built for the small screen. And I ultimately think that what makes Daisy Jones and the Six truly a triumph is the fact that they were brave enough to condense it into the small screen. Because what they try to do is deepen our time with these characters. And they succeed when it comes to Daisy and Billy. But I don't think they succeed with the rest of the characters. I think we talked about this before where when you have a project that tries to be so different in our zeitgeist and they try to be so brave they succeed at certain things but because nothing came before it they are doomed to make mistakes and part of the mistakes here are they were so invested in making us fall in love with the two main characters that they forgot about literally everything else as the show went on I think the band of the six is ultimately forgettable like as characters even Billy's brother who's a real really propped up to be an important character. I even forgot his name because to me, he was so forgettable. Graham, uh, the reason I feel like his story was effective was not because of Graham himself. I liked Graham's side plot. I really did. I honestly loved Graham's side plot almost more than Billy. But I think it was his relationship to Suki Waterhouse's character, Karen, because Karen actually had a genuine want. She was the closest member of the six outside of Daisy Jones and Billy to have actual motivations. And her motivations were really realistic. She just didn't want to be the person who was in the band because she was dating someone on the band, which felt real, especially due to the gender dynamics present in the band and also in relationship to that time period with real life. And I think there are three prominent female characters in this show. There's Daisy Jones, there's Billy's wife, Camilla, and there's Karen, two of which are musicians, and one of them is married to the lead musician. And these characters are given a lot of grace. We get invested in their storylines, we get invested in their motivations and their traumas. And they're all quite well written. But at times, I feel like their motivations are where those character arcs end because they don't necessarily grow as human beings. So while they hook us in into being like really interesting characters at the very beginning, they don't change. Not really. Daisy Jones remains Daisy Jones. Camilla remains Camilla. And Karen remains Karen. It's true. And there are a lot of external problems that they deal with later on. And there's, in fact, an external character in the final episode that I thought was really unusual that was in the book. And I think that's probably one of the big reasons was that they might have wanted to change the ending and then were forced to. That's just my guess. That's my fan theory because I don't feel like the ending works at all. I feel like when it comes to both up here and Daisy Jones and the Six, I feel both shows start with focusing on their female characters, especially their female leads. They focus on them in such a way that it really invites you into the show. It hooks you in because they both start, for instance, with their childhoods what makes them insecure in the first place. 
And in both shows, midway through, they have to deal with that childhood. They have to deal with the repercussions of being a child in this environment and having that kind of competition. Interestingly enough, the story that is told with Daisy Jones, Daisy reminded me a lot, interestingly enough, of the Marilyn character from Blonde that we talked about last year. But if that was done with an, with a huge scoop of extra grace because I didn't feel like Blonde, of course, did that with much grace at all. Yeah, like I think Daisy Jones feels more like a human being than they made, unfortunately, Marilyn Monroe's character in the movie Blonde, which is, again, really frustrating because Marilyn Monroe was an actual real person and Daisy Jones is not a real person. Daisy Jones is, I think, the perfect example, right, of how you fictionalize the story. Because it is very clearly distinct from Fleetwood Mac. Yes, it's taking inspiration. Absolutely. But at the same time, there are things that happen in Daisy Jones that definitely don't happen in Fleetwood Mac. And it's also a different band. That said, you listen to the songs and it feels like a Fleetwood Mac album. It feels like something that could have been made between Rumors and Tusk. And I think that's amazing. Yeah, I do too. I still listen to the river constantly when I go to the gym. I do like three days of the week, I do a hike, a 7k hike. And I constantly listen to that song on repeat because it's so energetic. And it's energetic in the best way, which you wouldn't think about when it comes to like a folksy song like that. But yet it is it just pops. Back to your original question regarding like these female characters and in relation to appear as i said both these characters start from a place of intrigue and a place of trauma and as you said they eventually have to confront that trauma but what also unfortunately happens is that when we reach that confrontation their character development is just dropped to service other characters. Lindsay sort of services Miguel's trauma, his own insecurity, and Daisy Jones services Billy Dunn's insecurity. Lindsay and up here is done so in a way that feels minimizing because she's forgone through most of the series. But because Daisy Jones is present throughout the entire show because her conflict with Billy is the central conflict, we see her all the time. But we see her completely servicing Billy in the second half of the show once they meet. Her motivations are not necessarily to become a, a successful musician anymore. They are instead turned into, hey, I want to sleep with Billy. I want to be in a relationship with Billy Dunn, which doesn't feel real to her character or true to her character because she is so laser focused in the beginning. She even says to the multiple people who try to hit on her, like, hey, are you hitting on me because of my beauty or because I'm talented? And she constantly rebuffs them if it's just about her beauty. And she gets angry about it. And you're right, she is a complete feminist and she constantly stands on to her own values. But then she becomes a totally different character with different values once she meets Billy. Like her own own morality starts collapsing, which just doesn't make sense. And unfortunately, what that causes, again, that double-edged sword, because even though that creates like a romance plot that is juicy, it also makes her appear like a manic pixie dream girl archetype, which Jordan, you can probably describe better than I could. Well, I certainly can. And interesting thing about it is that this has actually happened once before with Scott Neustadter's 500 Days of Summer, which I think is interesting. This is kind of a, in some ways, continuation of his legacy. But I thought 500 Days of Summer did a great job of kind of taking the idea of the Manic Pixie Dream Goal and dissecting it. Whereas something like Garden State was a little bit more, was a little bit more focused on just showing the 
Manic Pixie Dream Girl, 500 Days of Summer, investigated it a little bit. And I felt like in this show, there is an attempt to investigate it still, but it starts to, yeah, I, I think it runs out of steam a little bit as time goes on. And I also feel like the final episode wraps things up so quickly that it was really hard to kind of get your footing as an audience member. And I think it was probably the same for the writers. So if you wanted to talk about the Manic Pixie Dream Girl as an idea in TV, you would want to go all the way back to sort of the mid-century of storylines. There are often these romance stories in which a female character comes along, somebody a little bit quirky. If you think about A Breakfast at Tiffany's, I think that's a really good example because the character of Holly Golightly kind of represents the trope of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. And there are a couple of things that you need to think about. A, they're probably a little off-center. They're a little different from the normal girl. Sometimes it's like they're quirky and they're sort of like bright-eyed. I mean, a great example is any character that Zoe Deschanel has ever played, which I think is part of the reason why she was cast in 500 Days of Summer. But A Manic Pixie Dream Girl, I think what you're knocking on is that they typically fade into the background of a story, that the character may be prominently featured in some aspect. However, they stop short of having their own justification for being in the story. And in fact, their justification is usually just that they are there to service the main character, who may or may not be a good person, right? Billy Dunn has definitely some problems. I think he does a pretty good job. In fact, I would say this is one of the lighter versions of a Manic Pixie Dream Girl story, but I do think your concerns are valid because Billy Dunn and Daisy are at some point in the show both active characters. It's just that as time goes on, she and I think almost all of the characters serve to vocally be side characters to his main plot. Even Teddy Price, uh, the character in the early episodes, tends to run that course as well. So I think this is a example of an unintentional Manic Pixie Dream Curl as opposed to an intentional one. Absolutely, because she doesn't start that way. And ultimately, the very core meaning of a Manic Pixie Dream Girl is that it's a character that services as a fix to the trauma of another character. She's effectively like a human band-aid because she doesn't serve any other purpose. She doesn't start out that way, but she becomes that, unfortunately. Especially when you add that sort of development to the very ending that we keep skirting on. Because the ending very much does a disservice to the connection between Daisy and Billy at large. And the connection the two of them have with Camilla. And I think that even though I want to dissect that in detail, I think it would be best if audiences witness the show for themselves. What I will say is that introducing a character in the final episode that plays such a significant role, you need to seed that throughout the rest of the series. And that's really all I have to say about that. What do you think in moving forward? You mentioned this is somewhat of a prototype of something that I personally would love to see more of, even from Hello Sunshine. I think the production company is well-suited for this kind of material. What are some lessons learned here? What are some things that uh, really work and should be carried in? And what are some things that might not work and should be carried forward? I think being able to draw from a real band, but at the same time, being able to make your own individualized characters that just take inspiration from said band, 
brand is important because it creates like a unique freedom that you can effectively do whatever you want and not be beholden to actual life stories that you're drawing from and instead try to subvert them or try to make them different enough that you were able to surprise your audience in effective ways. The other thing that really works is the music, right? The music still feels like Fleetwood Mac, but it's very much individual from it. It allows creators and other musicians to come together to create something new and exciting as opposed to having reinterpretations of old music. Reinterpretations of old music are great, but I think what this new storytelling medium is providing is something ultimately very exciting and new, and that should be carried over into other projects. I agree. And interestingly enough, I feel like one of the things that hinders this show the most is the fact that it doesn't have all of that material from a real life band and doesn't have all that specificity. I was curious going into this show whether a fictitious biopic like this would be more liberating or constraining. I know you have some qualms about the specific definition of a fictitious biopic. That said, I think that in some ways it is actually constraining because you have to fill in all of those gaps, which is very easy to do on something like Spinal Tap. I think Spinal Tap does a great job of filling that in partially with gags, partially with like actual stuff, because it is very closely resembling certain bands of its time. But it also kind of moves beyond that at a certain point. Similarly to Walk Hard the Dewey Cox story, that one had the added benefit of not only being a movie, but being almost entirely based on one specific movie, which is Walk the Line, that was from a couple of years earlier. This one, it had to adapt a book, but it was also, from what I gather, a pretty short, pretty concise book. And so not exactly the kind of material like a Stephen King novel, where you get all of these details. You get enough details that the show, I think, really feels believable. But I think even a larger material book might have served for a TV show that felt better paced throughout. Because again, I give this show a really solid two thumbs up. And I think that if it just had a little bit of a recon on pacing, and if they were able to take liberties with the ending, I would have given this, I think, a full 10 out of 10. I'm at a similar position, but I would take it a step further and say that they also needed to add more depth to other characters. And they needed to stay true to certain characters. Again, Daisy Jones being the prime example. And Camilla. Camilla also gets a really unrealistic turn at the very end. Again, it's a shame because the other characters were interesting on paper. I think Karen was the most interesting on paper, for instance, but they're not developed. You get their motivations, but nothing beyond that. And I think that if a project like this were to happen again, I think other people need to look at the show and be like two leads are not enough to make the story if it's about a band it should be about the band so true and talking about expertly written tv we are going to be talking about two huge emmy contenders on our next episode of zeitgeist with apple tv plus's ted lasso and succession from hbo max or sorry i should say max (laughs) so stay tuned for that everybody until then we are closing off another episode i have been your co-host jordan conrad and i've been your co-host nevo boz and we will see you within less than a month so keep a close eye on the pulp culture feed or wherever you are listening we hope that you had a great time if you're listening on spotify or mixcloud with our big mix of music if you 
are not listening on one of those two platforms and you have the ability, I highly recommend you do so. And we will see you again very soon. Ta-ta for now. Hey Zeitgeist fans, since you stayed till the very end, I have a special treat for you. It is a spoilerific bit that I had to cut out of my conversation with my friend Kieran. So if you have read or watched Daisy Jones and the Six, I think you're really going to love this take. So I know we've covered a little bit of this already, but are there any other aspects that you enjoyed or bumped up against that you haven't already mentioned? Yeah, I actually have a pretty big one that I'm excited to talk about. So this is an oral history book that is being recorded entirely by Billy Dunn's daughter, Julia. And you don't find out that she's the one recording the story until much later into the book. And I think that it almost explains to me why the book is so tame and muted. Because I don't trust these characters, you know, with Camilla, Daisy, or Billy, in being honest with Julia as to what really happened. I, I so much of the, the book being written after Camilla dies. I think that child is going up to their parent and is like, hey, did you cheat on my mom? Like, did you step out on our family when I was a kid? I highly doubt that any parent would be like, yes, yes, I did. I think that they would want to protect themselves, protect their family. I think especially something that I was thinking about is that Billy is very open about his substance abuse and his promiscuity and his affairs with Camilla. And he talks about it a lot, but only before Julia is born. That is the only time he really talks about going into it in depth. And that's, you know, when all of his addiction took place. And he wasn't very strong. And then Julia's born and he's not there for the birth. Camilla gives him this ultimatum of you can go to rehab or you can be a father now or you can f*** off. Like, what do you want to do? And he goes to rehab and he chooses to be a father. But because Camilla was so steadfast, I just don't trust him as a character to be honest with anyone in his life if he had made those mistakes. And so he talks about his whole interactions and potential affair with Daisy as something that was under his control the entire time. And I think that's just something that he's projecting to his daughter to make her feel like their family is a lot more stable than it might be. And especially with Daisy, Julia and Billy's kids all looked up to Daisy so much. Would Daisy really want to ruin that by saying, like, I had an affair with your father, or this is how I really felt about you or your mother? It, you know, your mother who just died. It creates this thing of, I don't actually believe most of what the story that is being told. 